Hello and welcome back to another version episode of C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller. That is me. I'm your host and interviewer each week. This is Franklin Covey's second video podcast of which I'm privileged to host. The first, of course, is now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast called On Leadership with Scott Miller, where each week I am privileged to host and interview best-selling authors, business titans, sometimes Hollywood celebrities, and, 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 and military leaders that have great insights on how to build your leadership skills. And what we learned is, is that some of the most listened to, forwarded, shared, and reviewed interviews weren't the Hollywood actor or the renowned celebrity. They were people like today's guests that had a tremendous career journey, but a relatable journey that all of us can learn from. And so we spun this new podcast off interviewing people from the C-suite today. Our guest is the Vice President and Chief Human Resource Officer for Chevron. Her name is Rhonda Morris, and she's joining us from their West Coast office in California. Rhonda, welcome to C-Suite Conversations. Thanks for having me, Scott. Hey, thank you for also being a listener and subscriber to the podcast. My production team told me that in your research to determine if I was legit, which I barely passed the test, there was one podcast episode in particular that I think you liked. I think it was the CEO of Panera Foods and the Panera brand, and I think that's true that maybe even you reached out to him. Talk about what it was that spoke to you and the C-suite interview with Niran Chandri from Panera. I did reach out to him and I was actually quite surprised. He responded pretty quickly. I wrote notes. It's the only interview and I have listened to a number of your interviews, but I actually wrote some notes from that specific one. And I actually shared my notes of what he said with the CEO of Chevron. And it was the question you asked, I think about values and the values that were intertwined between his personal life and his um, his work life. And one item I remember specifically was the role of a company supporting communities where you operate. And a second one that I remember had to do with the importance of learning and specifically learning new things, unlearning old things, and relearning things that have changed. Yeah, he was a class act. If you've not had a chance to listen to that interview with the CEO of Panera, it was a lovely interview, both on his personal life and his family tragedy yes. and the lessons that he's taken from that as a leader and his role in leading his own company through the pandemic, which leads me to kind of a similar story. You know, I've heard you quoted. You're a fairly, you're a fairly public thought leader. You host an interview series on LinkedIn. We'll talk about it in a moment. But I heard you quoted as talking about how, you know, the great resignation was a fact in most of the world except for Chevron was fairly ensconced from that and that you didn't have much turnover during the Great Resignation. And there's some very specific reasons for that. One is you build a culture where people can, in fact, come and align benefits to having your whole career there. But not everyone, of course, is Chevron. Rhonda, could you spend a few minutes and talk about what are the processes, the systems, the structures, the strategies that Chevron employed to, by and large, insulate yourself from the Great Resignation that any company, including those without Chevron's resources, could replicate as there is still a war on talent? I think the first thing I would say, it, our, we have a very strong culture and our employment model is really, it's structured in such a way that we design it so that people can spend their entire careers in our company. And it's important now to younger people 
to have what I talk about. Um, I've heard this phrase called a portfolio career and a portfolio career is one where you can shift different job families throughout the course of your career. And in my time with the company, and I joined Chevron 31 years ago, although I don't have 31 years of service, I took a little detour earlier in my career, which if you're interested in, I'm happy to chat about. But you can change your career and stay in our company. And that's been longstanding. Our company's also a tremendous corporate citizen. I used to say we were one of the best corporate citizens in America. I was corrected by an employee in West Africa on a business trip several years ago, and he said we are one of the best corporate citizens on the planet. And we support communities where we operate. We build infrastructure in remote locations where we operate if it doesn't exist. And it's we our sense of community is really strong. Because we're a long-term career employer, people um, in Chevron typically are growing old together and in a really fractured world right now, having that strong sense of community where you see people get married, have kids, you watch your kids grow up, you watch them go through all types of life changes that are positive challenges dealing with, with parents. We have pretty strong connective tissue in our organization. Those things result in historically low turnover. Our turnover is single digits. In fact, I reported to our top 100 leaders yesterday in a presentation that our attrition has gone up from the last time I shared it with them in May from roughly 3.2% to 4% globally. And sometimes externally when I talk about it, people are just shocked at these numbers. I mean, I think it's remarkable that what Chevron has done in many ways is what Franklin Covey has done. I mean, we're you know a less than a hundredth the size of your company. More than that, we're a global company, very small companies, just several thousand associates. But like what you described, I've had a portfolio career inside Franklin Covey for 25 years. I've had nine distinct roles. And for a company that is a fraction of the size, I think Franklin Covey does its best to build a career journey for our employees. Because at, 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 in current times, you know, 18 months is a long career for people. People, Correct. by and large, want to build a portfolio career because if you've been at a company for 10, 15 years, you know, 15 years ago, that was normal. Now you're a pariah in some ways if you stay too long. What's wrong with you? Why can't you find a job somewhere else? But what is it in terms of culture that Chevron has intentionally created? Not necessarily benefits or compensation, but is there something culturally unique about your organization that people choose to stay for the emotional paycheck as opposed to just the financial paycheck? I would say the answer to your question is yes. And, and I'll give you a couple of examples. We communicate with our employees um, almost in some respects too much, and we do it in a number of different ways. In fact, during the pandemic, I had a discussion with our CEO, and he told me that he was getting feedback that we were communicating too much. And the communication comes in the forms of leaders at all levels, from the CEO to myself to the executive leadership team. During the pandemic, we had a number of all-hands virtual town halls where any employee anywhere in the world could join in and we do one in the morning and one in the afternoon. We operate in about 55 countries. We have 40,000 employees. These are unscripted events and employees feel very comfortable asking us questions about pretty much anything. We also have had employee resource groups. We call them employee networks for over 20 years. One of the things I learned during the pandemic is that type of structured engagement with employees and having avenues where people can have awkward or uncomfortable conversations with people who are different. And the differences take on um, all different. It's not necessarily just race. It's not necessarily just gender, but we've had 
this infrastructure and a strong foundation of doing a number of different things that I've learned that, that don't exist in other places. And I think, again, that that allows us to be creative. It allows us to have open, candid dialogues. And when George Floyd was murdered in 2020, we were not a company that was unaccustomed to having difficult conversations. We had a program that we partner with Catalyst called um, Men Advocating Real Change. It's a program that's designed to help men have conversations about the progression of women in the workplace. And after George Floyd was murdered, we were easily able to take that structured discussion and shift it from gender to race. And while the conversations, I wouldn't describe them as easy, a lot of them were hard, having them was not hard because again, we had that foundation to, to start with. And the last thing I would say, Scott, is um, we have a lot of fun. I, I laugh every day. I enjoy my colleagues a lot. We are very enterprise focused more so than being individually focused. And I say that from the standpoint of success of the enterprise is more paramount than the success of an individual. Rhonda, so clearly a great place to work, the Chevron Corporation. I've also heard you say, maybe loosely quoted, that somehow we never hire bad employees. I mean, our employees are great. Maybe that's hyperbole, maybe I've quoted you wrong, maybe it's true or accurate that you said that. What is it you do in terms of the onboarding, interviewing, selection process that others can learn from? Do you have a, a, a strategy that recognizing that you know, you're a magnet for talent and not everyone should work at Chevron? How do you, how do you what kind of talent selection techniques do you employ that others listening and watching today could learn from? Well, I, I'm not sure I ever said we've never hired a bad employee because I think everybody has hired a bad employee at some, at some point. Recruiting, I, I'll start with recruiting. Recruiting has always been incredibly important at all levels of our organization. And we just have this ability to attract really smart people in our company. That's one of the reasons I've stayed here. As long as I have, I really get a lot of energy out of working with really smart people. The Our recruiting team is a mix of people who work in my organization, but it's also a mix of a complement of a, what I call a volunteer army of individuals who may or may not have gone, graduated from a university where we recruit. We have executives who are sponsors at universities. I'm the sponsor of our relationship with the University of California at Davis, where I graduated from a very, very long, long time ago, we have a robust internship program. And we didn't cancel our internship program during the pandemic. We shifted it from being in our plants and our offices and facilities to being remote. And it was a hard decision to do that, but it's paying a lot of dividends for us maintaining this long-standing program we've had where we give people very early in their careers or interns who are just learning how to become engineers, for example, in college, real life projects to work on. And part of the attraction with the young people who wanna to come to work in our company is focusing on the energy transition and being part of a solution. So smart people, I believe, can do a lot of things. The portfolio career, I think, is attractive to a lot of people. We don't perhaps advertise that as much as we're bringing people into the company, but people see that and they hear it when they talk to individuals about their careers and where they've worked in the world and the different experiences they've had. And we spend a lot of time on developing leaders and understanding how important leadership is. So those are some of the things I think any organization can do irrespective of what, what the size is. People really matter 
and they make a huge difference. Rhonda, if you were coaching someone going into a high stakes career interview, whether it you know, was to be the vice president of operations for the Western region or an entry level new associate coming out of college, what advice would you give to someone getting ready to go into an interview and a job that they really want to land? What should they do and avoid doing during the interview? Number one, do your homework and understand exactly and do your homework and look for depth. Number two, ask questions. If someone comes in and I interview them and they don't have any questions, it makes me wonder, are you curious and what do you real do you really want this role? And the looking for depth is I would counsel anyone not to interview with just one person because you're joining an organization unless you're working for a very small company and one person, look for depth. I made a decision, I mentioned earlier that I took a little detour from Chevron and I was quite enamored with the person I was going to work for, who I thought was just absolutely brilliant. I didn't really focus on the entire organization or depth beyond this person. So that's something that I learned early in my career. Rhonda, thank you for the vulnerability to share a mistake that you made by pivoting out and apparently coming back. Take a moment, take a deep breath. Can you think of a mistake that you've made in your life, and your career, that others might benefit from learning from. What happened? What was your decision-making process beyond the one you just mentioned, maybe? And what did you learn from it that might uh, benefit our listeners and viewers from falling into the same trap? I'm happy to do that. And I tell this story to Chevron employees all of the time. The headline is, Effective communication rests with the person who is communicating, not necessarily the listener. Amen. And the story that is associated with that, and I'll try to make this short. I worked on our acquisition of Unical several years ago, and I was the leader of what was called the people team. And that means in, I was responsible for the integration of the 6,000 Unical employees in, into Chevron. I would fly to their headquarters in Sugarland, Texas. I would have these discussions with them. And I would share where information, where they could access information. And we created a dummy intranet site while the transaction was being completed. And they weren't part of the company, but we were trying to be proactive with this is what Chevron's like. These are what our benefits are like. And any We had frequently asked questions. I would fly back to headquarters and I'd start getting a flood of inquiries about exactly what I had just talked about when I was physically present with this group. This happened three times. The third meeting, the fourth time I went, I was standing in a town hall and I will, Scott, I will never forget this, in a room with hundreds of people. And I said, I, this is my fourth visit here. It's very clear I'm not communicating clearly to all of you because every time I come back, I, I leave, you start asking me questions and all of the questions are on the intranet site that you're asking is what, can you guys help me understand what is not working here? And there was a hand that was raised in the very back of the room. And this young woman said, we have no idea what you're talking about. What is an intranet site? I had been talking about something. They didn't know what it was, but I didn't create an opportunity for anyone to say, I, I don't know what you're talking about. So I've learned I have to ask a very simple question. And that question is, am I clear? Is what I said clear? And that gives someone permission to say, no, it isn't. I don't understand. Yeah. Well, perhaps even deeper, the lesson you're teaching there is, you, you, is that leaders need to create a culture, an environment 
where it's safe to say, I don't understand what that means or I don't understand what yes. you're saying. I'm interviewing Brene Brown in a couple of weeks for the other podcast series I host. And yes. one of Brene Brown's most genius things she says is clear is kind. She's talking about the value of clarity. And I think a lot of times leaders, we just think what we know is ubiquitous, right? That we have to realize that the journey we got to the level of knowledge we have isn't the same journey everybody else has. And you may need to repeat things to very smart, talented people multiple times to make sure that they have the same ability to adapt and assimilate to it as you do. Great, great learning. Uh, Can I add something to yes. that, Scott? Um, because I, I also learned exactly what you just said, that it's okay to repeat yourself because I was finding myself getting a bit frustrated and even a little bit angry because mm -hmm. I kept saying the same thing over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And I learned that repetition is a positive, not a negative. It is true. And I can even add to that. Uh, I'm The team that I lead right now, uh, I've been updating them on some changes coming to the division. And I kind of pride myself on making sure that nobody is ambushed, everybody has a chance to kind of figure out their portfolio careers. But I also realize that sometimes I need to be better prepared because if I speak extemporaneously, I may say things that are misinterpreted or it's a truth today but may not be a truth next week. And I've got to be careful that I'm not confusing people by over-communicating because I think yes. we've seen that sometimes even in political leaders, right, is that they, they jag left and jag right and then they're, they're, they're uh, confusing people. Um, I'll tell you, one of our, my favorite quotes is from a Franklin Covey founder, Blaine Lee. He wrote a book called Influence with Honor. And he said, nearly all, if not all conflict in life comes from mismatched or unfulfilled expectations. To your point, the more we can responsibly and deliberately clearly communicate and create a culture where people can say, I don't know what that means. Can you tell me what the internet site is? It's a great, it's a great learning. Talk about another success you had in your career that maybe is not unique to your skill set, but perhaps a mentor or a leader poured into you and you exponentiated your jump. Is there something that you did well that you can be proud of? Check your humility to say, you know, I did this and here was my influence from that, that all of us could maybe adapt in our own careers? That's a, that's a tough question. Um, I don't like talking about myself a lot, but what I'll talk about uh, taking risks. And I, I've learned over time, and even especially during the pandemic, um, to kind of step outside myself or even to a degree get over myself and do some things that make me a little bit uncomfortable and take more risks. Uh, I, I shared with one of your colleagues that we had during the pandemic, a program called Camp Chevron. And Camp Chevron was created to help in 2020, to help our employees who had small children, who whose camps, whose regular camps like boating camp or like real Girl Scout camp or any type of camp, the summer activities were canceled. And these were people who were struggling in the beginning of the pandemic with remote learning. And we've got in Chevron a in, an internal social media platform called Workplace. And there we have, I don't know, hundreds of groups. One of them is the parents group. I'm part of the parents group. I have a teenage daughter who was in high school when this was happening. And I just put a question in into the parents group about summer camp because I started to see this thread of oh, what are we going to do this summer? And I said, hey, I have this idea. What if we created our own virtual summer camp 
do you guys have any interest in this? Do you think we could make this work? And this again, wild idea, something we've never done before. And it just exploded. And we used an army of our current employees, our employee network leaders, nonprofit organizations, and we created our own summer camp. And the summer camp had courses on cooking, on health, there were exercise classes, there were classes actually about the company for older kids, there were classes on financial planning. And my favorite part of all of this was I convinced our executive leadership team to host uh, story time. And so our CEO and all of his direct reports were recorded reading their favorite children's story. And our CEO read Green Eggs and Ham, our general counsel read Ferdinand, I read where the wild things are. And when I first posed this idea to them, they just were incredibly uh, resistant and said, we are not doing that at all. That is just a bad idea. And I kept being persistent. I said, this is going to be great. Just trust me. So they went from being incredibly reluctant to do it to being incredibly competitive of who did the best job, whose story reading was viewed the most. And it was just a magical, magical moment. Was there reluctance because they felt like it lowered their stature from the C-suite or they had to move outside their comfort zone? What was their initial reticence to the idea? I think it was moving outside their comfort zone. And, and so I think part of my job is, is to keep pushing us outside of our, our comfort zone. Um, I, again, have stayed here because I can be my, I would just call it normal weird self and just and do things like that yeah. that are a little yeah. bit, a little bit unusual. I love it. It sounds to me that one of the tenants at Chevron is uh, instilling in your colleagues that you care about them more than just what they can do for the company, that you care about their health, their mental health, their financial health, their long-term health, their family's health, and that's a magnet for talent. And the many roles that you play, including vice president and CHRO and mother and camp organizer and uh, <laughs> child book reader. You also host an interview series on LinkedIn called Leading in the B-Suite. Uh, talk a bit about that. Uh, yes, I, I'm happy to do that. That's a passion project of mine. I do the interview series with Adam Bryant, who wrote the New York Times Corner Office column yeah. for a number yeah. of years. And I met Adam in 2019. So actually a couple months before the pandemic, he interviewed me for a series he does on LinkedIn, where he interviews CHROs. And after the interview, and I think there's some serendipity in life, he and I happened to both he interviewed me in person. We happened both to have flights out of uh, San Francisco airport at the same time. And I offered him a ride to the airport. And this 45 minute car ride turned into us talking about all kinds of things, life, music, writing, work, leadership. And during the course of the pandemic and George Floyd being murdered, we had this conversation and we were paying a lot of attention to what was going on in America and what was going on specifically with race and racism towards black Americans. And when Adam did the corner office series, he made a purposeful decision to interview a lot of women and a lot of people of color, but he also made a purposeful decision not to ask them questions about gender and not to ask them questions about race. And so this discussion shifted to, well, maybe it's time to have these discussions about race. And our intent is to, we interview um, a series of black executives and the questions that are asked are about their, their childhood, their stories about leadership and what their experiences are like as black executives leading organizations, large organizations in the United States. And it's designed to help people 
to show people how do you have these conversations? How do you tell stories? How do you learn from them? And it's picked up a pretty sizable following in a pretty short period of time. I've met some amazing people and I believe role models are really important and we're able to showcase a number of black leaders who are doing absolutely amazing things and I'm quite I am quite energized by the fact that the list of people we can interview feels infinite and that counteracts without actually saying it explicitly um, a narrative that we can't find talented black leaders when I've got a list of people to expose to the world that again feels infinite. That would be a great idea for a book. Imagine if you were a <laughs> compendium on the insights from that interview series. How does someone find the Leading in the B-Suite uh, series on LinkedIn? Someone can find it. You can search um, on my name. You can search on Adam's name. You can type in Leading in the B-Suite. And I would encourage you to, to subscribe to the series. We get, a, we get a lot of feedback and a lot of comments. And the trolls, by and large, have strangely enough stayed, stayed away. And the conversations are candid. They're open. They're honest. And it's been amazing and amazing learning for me that we're at a point in time where people are I feel more open about sharing their stories, yeah. their lived yeah. experiences. Yeah. And we talk about headwinds that these leaders face and then the tailwinds and tips and tricks and lessons that they've learned and used um, to keep moving forward. Rhonda, I want you to give us some parenting advice as we finish today's interview. Like me, you are a parent. My wife, Stephanie, and I have three young boys, eight, 10, and 12. And to her horror, they all have my energy and personality but we're trying to raise these boys and launch them as gentlemen in a difficult world full of trolls, uh, not my boys. Uh, as, you, as you balance your parenting hat in your CHRO hat, my youngest boy is eight. So in you know, 16 years, he's going to be in the workforce, yes. maybe 14 years. Fast forward eight, 10, 12, 14 years. What are the key skills? His name is Wentworth. My youngest son's name is Wentworth. What do you want Wentworth to know how to do when you're interviewing him on your last day in the job, 16 years from now? Yes. What types of skills do you need Wentworth to have to have a great career at Chevron? Well, the first thing I would share, it's your, your son's name is Went, Wentworth? Wentworth, W-E-N-T-Worth, oh, Wentworth, yes. Wentworth. Writing well is incredibly important. So having a command of the English language is important. There are simple ways I believe someone can differentiate him or herself. And one of them is actually writing thank you notes. If I interviewed your son and he left and he hand wrote me a thank you note, I'd probably hire him immediately. I think it's a lost art. Um, I, my daughter grew up I wouldn't let her play with toys from when she was very small until she wrote a thank you note toys. These are toys given to her for her birthday until she thanked every single person who gave her a gift. So gratitude, I believe, is important. And going back to how we started with what I learned um, from the Panera CEO, learning and continuous learning and having a thirst for learning and understanding and even learning things that will cause you to change your mind or how you think and being open-minded, th those are important. And being kind and compassionate, um, you can never lose with those attributes. 
That's a second book. I mean, talk about <laughs> wisdom from the chief human resource <laughs> officer. Look for Rhonda Morris's books coming out to a bookstore near you, CHRO and Vice President at Chevron. Thank you for your time today. You are a class act. I appreciate you. Oh, thank you. I, it's a pleasure um, joining, and an, it's a pleasure and an honor joining you. Thank oh, you. The pleasure is ours. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation from the C-Suite. <laughs>